0: at luckylandslots.com
1: available to players in the US excluding Washington and Michigan no purchase necessary vgw group void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply
0: welcome to the broadway gives back podcast i'm your host jan svenson this podcast spotlights broadway actors shows and organizations in their pursuit of social impact and philanthropy Join us as some of the brightest lights on Broadway share their stories about their favorite charities and how they got involved, and the people and the causes who benefited from these philanthropic efforts. Best known for her amazing Broadway debut as Gloria Estefan in On Your Feet, Anna Villafanier currently stars as the legendary Roxy Hart, one half of the killer diller team in the hit revival of Chicago. She also lends her voice and her talents to a number of important causes, including supporting individuals with arthritis and homeless children. I'm thrilled to have her here today to talk about philanthropy and social impact and all the work she does. Anna, welcome to the Broadway Gives Back podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I think it's very fitting for us to do this podcast together about philanthropy because we actually met the first time, and I'm not sure you remember, but it was actually doing something philanthropic. Um, it was at a rehearsal for the Viva Broadway benefit concert, which was Gloria Stefan and Miami Sound Machine oh and gosh. the cast of On Your Feet. I was producing the concert and you were just about to open and on your feet. And I think that was the first time you ever performed on stage with Gloria. Is that true?
1: It was. It was also the first time I ever performed on a Broadway stage. And the irony of all ironies, that is also when I met Bianca Marroquin because she introduced That's me. right. And, um, so it's very full circle to then now stand on stage with her and to be, you know, co-starring in a show. It's, it's incredible. (laughs)
0: Um, And Bianca is going to be also a guest on a podcast that we're going to be dropping at the same time as yours. So it'll be great to have people listen to both of your conversations. I love it. Um, before we get into the conversation about philanthropy and all the social impact work that you do, and just to get things rolling, I wondered if you could answer a few personal ish, rapid fire questions kind of like speed dating. I'll fire <laughs> off a question and you answer it with the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay.
1: Great. I'm ready.
0: All right. Favorite Broadway show.
1: Rent. Mm.
0: What animal would you be?
1: Oh a freshwater sea otter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's good. Um, if you could go invisible, where would you go? And what would you like what where would you want to be if you were invisible? Who would you want to... Mm, if I, I was
1: invisible and no one could find me, I'd stay home. I would take naps. I would, <laughs> I would watch Netflix for days. <laughs> There's currently so much I want to watch, but I can't just disappear and <laughs> I have to be places. Uh,
0: can you describe yourself in three words?
1: Uh, curious, um, passionate, and mischievous, probably. Mm.
0: What do you most give a damn about in this world?
1: I would say, man, I wish I could ungive a damn about things to be honest with you. I'm very much an empath. So <laughs> mm-hmm. anything I hear about I give a damn about, um, which has been especially tough, I would say, over the last two and a half years or two years. But um, yeah, I give it I kind of give too much of a damn about everything
0: I can relate. I cry yeah. at the news yeah. every night.
1: I know, exactly. I have to like watch the British baking show to like cleanse my brain and system of headlines.
0: Yeah, Ted Lasso has done that for me.
1: Oh, there you go. Exactly. We all have our, <laughs> our fix to go to sleep, you know?
0: Exactly. Um, what dream do you have that you've yet to achieve?
1: I would say big picture. I really want to help empower um specifically children with chronic conditions. That's my that's my over, overarching goal. That's
0: a good one. Mm-hmm. What's your biggest mistake that you've ever made?
1: Oof, uh, my biggest mistake that I ever made doubting myself.
0: And what are you most proud of?
1: Going to sleep happy at night. I like live a life that I'm like, I, I I'm very very fort- fortunate to feel like fulfilled at the end of the day.
0: And what are you most grateful for today? my family so let's start actually let's start a long time ago when you were seven <laughs> years when you were seven years old you were diagnosed with juvenile arthritis and yeah. I just wondered if you would mind sharing that story and how that diagnosis and um, subsequent you know lifestyle um, impacted your life and impacted your philosophy about giving back to others
1: um so I was a very active kid and I'm the second of four children in my family so it was uh you know constant striving for attention but i never really had an issue there um but i was also like very much a tomboy always like climbing a tree or getting into some sort of trouble or getting lost at the mall or whatever um and then i got really really sick um during the olympics of 1996. i was born in atlanta georgia so my whole family we were over there Um, for the Olympics and all very exciting until I got this fever of unknown origin that ended up landing me in the hospital. And after months of being hospitalized, they finally found out that I had rheumatoid arthritis, which as a seven-year-old to hear the words juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, it was like, you know, a tongue twister and it meant nothing. Um, but everything, my entire life changed, like to the point where I can't really remember much before that. Um, but it became a very strange childhood because I was constantly, uh, I had attention for all the wrong reasons after that. And mm-hmm. I was known as the sick kid at school or in our community, like, you know, and, and everybody Treated me different, so I I really hated pity. Um, still to this day, but I really it, it became a very big turn off. Just so I could sense how people would shift and how they treated me, whether it was adults or kids. Um, and I was in and out of a wheelchair a lot. Um, during my childhood, and that was tough. I was like homeschooled for certain times, and then would go to school and like kids didn't know if they could sit with me at lunch because were they gonna catch something because all Mm -hmm. they would hear was were all these big words and saying oh Anna Viafania is sick, Anna Viafania is sick or let's pray for her or whatever it might be. And all out of no mal malicious intent, I would say, but kids are kids. And so I was very much othered and I felt like a complete alien um Mm -hmm. during school because we didn't have a good grip or firm control over my condition. So my parents, you know, were doing their best and basically putting themselves through like low-key nursing school in order to take care of me at home. Um, But also trying to manage not having my siblings resent me or trying to make them feel equally important. Um, it It was tough. It was very very tough and every family you know has like the dynamics and the things that they go through um but it took me a long time to kind of i guess forgive myself is is the term but for being the stressor of my family um so like mental health wise it took a pretty big toll on me and i had like really intense ptsd at nine and had to be re-hospitalized for that so it was just kind of this like ongoing saga which now I'm of course a lot more at peace with because I've learned to like love myself and to accept myself and how to take care of myself. But the beginning there was rough (laughs) and I attribute a lot of my, I guess, um, personal growth or like handling of it actually to the camps that I would go to during the summer for kids with disabilities where all of a sudden I wasn't the weird one at the lunch table. We were all getting medication. We all had injections. We all had, you know, knew way too much about the medical field at eight years old and could talk about it like adults, but, you know, but still wanted to be kids and play and, you know, construction paper and glitter and all that stuff. So it was, um, it was, it was a very uh, traumatic experience if I'm real about it, but, but it also led me to the things that, I love most and also kind of helped me become the person that I am today. So because of not being able to go outside or go to PE or participate in sports or anything like that, I turned to the arts and I turned to painting and I turned to music and started singing, which eventually led to acting and which, I mean, led to a career. So I kind of, it's interesting, you have to take the the good with the bad, right? But that's that's the short version of the story.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny you you use the word disabled. I always want to say differently abled, you know?
1: Right. Um, And it's, and it's so, it's interesting that you even bring that up because I had to come to weirdly terms with even that word, which on the scale, I mean, when I was younger, it was a lot less in control. So I didn't have as much um, mobility and I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to walk every day of every week. But now, um, it's very interesting because it it all kind of can look differently. People can be carrying conditions or disabilities or differently, different abilities um, that, that you don't even see. So it's just a, a very interesting level of awareness to grow up knowing that and feeling that and coming to terms with that within your own body and being able to accept yourself as not the victim or the villain of your own story, because when your body is the thing attacking you, it's hard to look in the mirror and be like, "All right, you're I like you <laughs> self.
0: So how did you those struggles? how did you overcome them? especially being a performer?
1: I would say a lot of trial and error. Uh, it's still it's still very much a daily thing. It's just a, a factor of my life. Um but I think performing helped me overcome in many ways, because, you know, you look at Broadway dancers, for example, and they're taking care of their bodies and looking after themselves. And there's a different, there's a discipline that comes along with being a ballerina. There's a discipline that comes along with being a singer. Um, And so I had to, I was forced into discipline at a really early age, not due to anything glamorous or fun, but it ended up, Kind of being a godsend because I've I've never not taken care of myself. So then, when it came to being a performer and really calling myself a performer and starting to work professionally, I already understood what that meant in terms of the upkeep and in terms of again the discipline and the self care.
0: That's really interesting. I've never thought of it that way, but that's so true. Um, I was also thinking about you know what you just said about the arthritis, the camp. Um, mm-hmm. So was that through the Arthritis Foundation?
1: Yes, so the camp that I would go to was called Camp Funrise in Miami, Florida. Um, and it was free through the Arthritis Foundation and it was a sleepaway camp that was just my favorite week of the year, always. Um, I started going, I believe when I was nine, Um, And then I just kept going until I was a counselor. Well, first I was like a junior counselor and then I was Mm -hmm. a real counselor and all the things. Um, But it was the best. I I mean, just to feel, you know, I think of like the Dear Evan Hansen lyrics of like, you will be found, right? Mm -hmm. And to feel some sort of belonging uh, as a kid in that particular circumstance, which childhood is, you know, wild anyway. It's Mm -hmm. hard to, to feel like you belong anyway. Um, and you're doing so much self-discovery and you're learning about the world and about your place in it and about the place you want in it. Um, so, for me, those camps were a hundred percent where I was able to like refuel myself and kind of like make friendships based on a bond that kind of transcends anything else.
0: Well, you probably don't have to explain yourself to anybody. They exactly. understand inherently, right?
1: Exactly. And I always felt a little bit of guilt even with like not being able to explain to my mom, mm-hmm. not being able to like translate or or communicate what I was feeling to the people that I loved most because they were doing their best, but they couldn't get it. Um so so it was a place where I was meeting not just other kids, but also adults who who understood from the inside.
0: I did a little research, the Arthritis Foundation. Um, they have this idea, this concept of champion of yes. Yes. And I don't really, I wondered if you could explain what it, explain what it means. But to me, when I was just sort of looking at it, it reminded me a little bit of the improv philosophy of like saying yes, yes and, yes right? And
1: <laughs> Correct. Well, because every day is kind of improv. I could wake up and not feel a hundred percent and you, and you, there's a, a level of perseverance and of I mean survival, really, but but it's more than that. It's like a like a will a, a will to overcome when you have this type of condition, right? And when you have anything which we can all probably relate to, it just so happens that ours is physical. And over three hundred thousand kids in this country alone have juvenile arthritis, um, and it's one of the most underserved populations because it's con- it's considered such an old person's disease mm-hmm. So the whole concept of being a champion of yes i really love it because it allows for the empowerment of that kid um and i say kid loosely because like i still feel like a kid and i'm 32 <laughs> <laughs> um but but especially with you know growing into your body yourself again your place in the world i think it's important to um to harness that power of yes and, and of being kind of a, being able to adjust to whatever life throws at you, and even if it's coming from within yourself, like learning to not be mad at yourself for that. Um, so there's a lot of yes involved.
0: <laughs> I think that's interesting. I I know you also, um, aside from the uh, the Arthritis Foundation you also have participated in Covenant House's um, Night of Covenant House Stars to benefit um, just celebrating the resilience of these young people who are experiencing homelessness. And I wondered, um, how did you get involved with that cause?
1: So Jeff Calhoun uh, reached out to me years ago, and I remember we met up at a Starbucks and just started talking about Covenant House, and they have a lot of houses in Latin America.
0: Really? I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, they and they're called Casa Alianza, which is, you know, the same thing translated. Mm-hmm. And so Frank Wildhorn actually wrote me an original song to sing as, like, the anthem for their covenant houses in Latin America, which exists in Mexico and Guatemala. My dad is from El Salvador and came here when he was 16 years old. So, like, I have a very big um, – I mean, I, I really – I'm Central American, so, like, it really mm-hmm. – was uh, hitting close to home for me. And then on top of that, and this blew my mind, and it's been quite the story actually, but my Cuban grandparents, when they moved to this country, they fostered a girl from Casa Alianza, from Guatemala, who had a facial tumor. And she lived in my like in their house with my mom. And, um, unfortunately she did pass away many years later, but I grew up seeing pictures of Rosita and hearing about this girl that, um, that my grandparents took in for a long time, uh, and then cut to doing the song for Casa Alianza and for Covenant House once I started working with them. And it's, um, and it was a very, you know, I got chills all over my body because it's, in what realm, like back in the, what, 70s, when that happened, my family never would have thought that that I would have then been uh, working with the organization. But it's very, again, I, I'm very big on the empowerment of young people. And a lot of these young people who find themselves without a home have a lot of other, whether it's like physical or mental health situations, I think a lot of it does go hand in hand and I'm hoping that that within my lifetime, there will be some some reforms on, on just the access for people to be healthy and to be okay and to be able to stand on their own two feet. Because for me, I grew up, thankfully, um, with access to my medication and with insurance. But I remember when I turned 26, as a person with a chronic condition, I remember turning 26 and crying because I realized that... that that I was going to have to be responsible for my injections are thousands of dollars and I need that yeah. to move. <laughs> so like, I'm aware of the privilege of, of being able to have my medication and not everybody has that same, that same privilege. So, um, so yeah, so I think it, it, it weirdly goes very hand in hand to me.
0: It does, you know. I was going to ask you, you know, before we started talking, like, how did you learn to become philanthropic? But it sounds like it was just this very organic thing, and the idea of empowering youth, whether it be through, you know, youth that are that have health issues or or, or mental health issues or homelessness, um, you know, it's all very thematic. It all fits yes. very well with sort of your bio and your history.
1: Well, I'm a product of it, you know, yeah. because that that camp saved my life and my like heart as a kid because it was mm. a heartbreaking. It was kind of a heartbreaking existence for me. I hated school. Mm. I only felt good on stage when I wasn't at camp. And so it. So I'm a product of these programs and of the uh, the empathy of others and of people who looked at me and gave me the tools to now do the same thing, hopefully for for other. Kids or young people. So
0: for you, it really is like giving back, like almost oh, like quite literally.
1: <laughs> absolutely.
0: You know, it's interesting because a lot of people, there's the word philanthropy or social impact or charity or cause, social responsibility, being of service, giving back. There's so many different ways of, you know, to call this sort of this concept. And, um, you know, for you, you quite literally are giving back.
1: I very much use the word purpose. Mm-hmm. In those moments, because I don't even I don't even know how to explain it. Like even charity, like I don't think I'm like doing something charitable. I think I'm I am extending what has been given to me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so it's very much like it keeps me going, and I think about that all the time. And when I get DMs, the other day, a girl with um, uh, cerebral palsy came to the show and sent. Uh, an Instagram story and and whatever and so I spoke to the house manager. I was like, "Listen, tonight, if there are any seats, because she got a standing room ticket, is if there are any seats that we can accommodate this girl." And she totally could have stood. I, I know that because I'm stubborn too. I would have stood too. <laughs> <laughs> but because I could ask and just if you know if there was a seat available, and Thea, our house manager, made sure that she was able to sit with a full view and the whole thing. And and so again, it's just like. If I if I somehow got to this to this position and um, and weren't looking out for the next, I guess, I don't know, the next generation or the next the next people who need it, then I, I would almost feel like what a waste for me to be here. that's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. by law. 18+ terms and
0: conditions apply. See website for details. What advice would you give your fans, our listeners, um, about um, being of service or creating a better world?
1: I would say that that it it starts with whatever lights your fire. You know, I don't think that, that there's a paint by numbers approach. I don't think there's anything, you know, that you should feel like you're supposed to be doing, but if it's calling you and if it's something that you inherently care about, then just follow that. It's like any, like any path of curiosity, right? Like, I'll okay, I, I'll go on Google and start Googling things and go down this rabbit hole. And all of a sudden I'm an expert on XYZ that I really didn't need to know at 3am <laughs> on a Tuesday, but but that's, it's, it's just following your instincts and, and seeing where that lands. I think it's it's such a beautiful way to exist. you know. And I think um, the advice would just be to, to trust that instinct.
0: Your parents and your siblings, did they get involved in your charitable work?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they kind of had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting because once I started singing when I was really young, the Arthritis Foundation started asking me to sing at events and stuff. And so they would take my family. And so every, you know, walk, every race, every like fundraiser, um, my, my family has been incredibly supportive. And now I'm like getting emotional because it's, it's, I know how lucky I am with that. And, um, and it took a while. And like, there was, you know, there were a lot of growing pains because like having siblings that couldn't understand what I was feeling or what I was going through was tough um, because they had to learn and navigate just as much as I did. And it's very mm-hmm. much a family thing. And, you know, I, one of, that's one of the things that I want to tackle in my life is try to create programs and spaces where, because it's not just the child, no, no child exists in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. So the parents, the siblings, the teachers, teachers didn't know, like, I, there was a moment when I was in fourth grade that I was a liability because I kept falling in school and, um, and having my PTSD episodes and stuff. And my mother was hired by my middle school or no, by my, I was in fourth grade by my elementary school as a hall monitor, quote unquote, um, so that I could stay in school. My, the principal of my elementary school did not have to do that, but she did. And so I had a lot of people in my corner and, and if more kids in you know, similar situations could have that feeling of like some sort of safety net and just people in your corner who are looking out for you and want you to succeed um, and want you to be empowered and want you to think that you can achieve things, whether it's based on a physical disability or a mental or homelessness, what would that world look like? I'm very interested in that and in creating it. <laughs>
0: Um, Nick Wyman was on my podcast last week and, um, he has a son who has, um, some pretty severe, um, physical disabilities. And I actually have a daughter who, um, is actually close to your age with, um, some very chronic severe disabilities as well, different abilities, but, um, and, uh, and we talked a little bit about what the concept, what you just said. And so just you sharing your personal stuff, I'm going to share a little personal stuff too, but, right. you know, it does impact the whole family and it impacted my other two children as well. And so finding a support system for, um, for the whole family yeah. is, I think, really important, um, both from, a, uh, you know, helping your child who has the issues, but also helping your children who don't. And right. what you were saying before, were you the victim or were you the villain, you know? And I right. think um I think that's you know just dealing with all of that psychologically is really important for everybody, right?
1: For sure. Oh my fer- my therapists have a field day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always like just when you thought you were at the end of something, there's more.
0: Okay. And there's more. Um yes. so I did I did read a little tidbit and it's interesting because this is a perfect segue in our conversation. So um let's talk about on your feet. You yeah. sang Gloria Estefan's song Reach at the Arthritis Foundation's camp when you were nine. Is that true?
1: Yes. So
0: your life had been, so much foreshadowing in it. It's you know, so
1: crazy. I know, whoever's writing this really deserves some sort of award because I would, okay, so backtrack even more. Where I first got sick, where I first got the fever for my onset was at the 1996 Olympics for which Reach was the Anthem then fast forward to me being nine years old and singing at camp and the the people at the arthritis foundation being like wait we can have this girl sing at our events and and that would be a good fundraiser (laughs) um and so i i became their little like poster child slash i would go one of my best friends from camp would speak he has spinal arthropathy and he would be the speaker because he was great at like the like you know, he, he's very like eloquent. He was always like 40, but in the body of a 10 year old. <laughs> um, and and we were tag team. He was the speaker and I would then come out and sing like, you know, an inspirational song. But the first time it ever happened was at the Disney Contemporary Resort in Orlando, Florida. They took my entire family and I sang Reach by Gloria Stefan. They said I could choose whatever song I wanted. And that was the song I chose. And my sister did a dance in the back because I was so nervous. Um, So I had her on stage with me. She was always like the ballerina. She was like the non clumsy one. Um, And that is the truth. That is what happened. Um, And then cut to getting the role of Gloria. And I actually tweeted, um, some days are meant to be remembered the day I got the job. And Gloria replied and followed me that night and said, um, that's right, baby, with like a bunch of emojis. And like I like just stared at the <laughs> computer because I was like, Oh my god, Gloria Stefan is my friend. What is happening? And and that was that. So every show when they would sing Reach, that I would was your sing. Thing. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, well, Gloria is, she's also my friend and she's, she's been best. on this podcast. Um she, <laughs> Shane and Emilio, they're amazing. And Emily. Yeah, they are. Uh, I, I keep thinking about your performance and on your feet, and it was so amazing. And you really I did enjoy. you this amazing, you didn't imitate Gloria, you became Gloria. Do you know what I mean?
1: Uh, I do. And it was so,
0: uh, it was so powerful and so beautiful too. And knowing her, I thought, "Oh, what's this going to feel like?" But now I just, um, I was, I was in it 100. And oh well,
1: thank you. Well, that's why I was so, um, I guess, hard on myself with the details because you, you're right. It couldn't have been an imitation. It couldn't be, you know, an Elvis impersonator in Vegas. It had to be (laughs) from a way deeper place. So luckily, she was very generous with. her time and her insight into getting there—like, I mean, she didn't have to show me the videos of like the births of her children. <laughs> I'm in there, like, so it was, uh, it was, it was amazing. But I knew that, you know, everyone had a point of reference, so people would come into the theater, and if I was just doing my own thing and Beyonceing and not honoring this incredible woman, then, then I would have failed. I think.
0: And Gloria is also, she's not one that you would ever want to have. She's never considered herself a victim, even with her accident. She never wanted pity or anything like that. And you played that so well because you played that from a place of strength, which is exactly what Gloria was like, right?
1: Actually, to your point, (laughs) when I got, when I, when I booked on your feet, the one thing that I was like, oh no, was my arthritis because I thought to myself, How am I going to tell these people that I have this condition that is possibly going to, you know, interrupt or get in the way or whatever. So she, right before rehearsals began, her and Emilio invited me to dinner in Miami. I was living in LA at the time. So I flew to Miami, went to dinner at, uh, at one of their restaurants on the beach and, You know, we're sitting there. I was like, I'm going to have one glass of wine. Can you be super professional? Um, Three bottles in, Gloria is like, I just want, you know, especially like with these topics, I just really don't want you to play the victim. And I was like, Mm. shit, this might be the, the perfect moment to say why I would never play the victim. So I had a moment of courage and I was like, well, actually... Because she was really, really giving me a lot of backstory about the accident, about how she felt. And so I'm sitting, and she was trying to describe to me what it feels like to be in a wheelchair and not sure if if you can move and all this. And so I was like, so I, I I listened. And then I was like, well, let me share with you why I can promise. If there's one thing I can promise, like I might, I might not be able to sing. I might not be able to dance, I might not be able to act in however many weeks, and you guys might be like, we're gonna get somebody else. But the one thing I can assure you is that I will not play the victim because blah, 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 blah. And I told her about my arthritis. And she just stopped. And you know her, so you understand. Like she like stopped and grabbed her wine glass and goes, so I can actually trust you. Mm. And I lost it because in that moment, I thought she was going to say, so we're going to get an alternate. We're going to have a standby. We're going to, you know, maybe figure out how to have like a contingency plan. And instead she trusted me. And instead she, she validated all of my experiences in that one moment in a way that, um, that, that has stayed with me forever. And that was You know, probably like this week of 2014, like it was early October of 2014, right before coming in and starting rehearsals um, in New York. So that's so it's interesting that you say that because it is it is very much true.
0: I remember so that. When I was referring earlier in the podcast to the rehearsal where I met you, um, yeah. I don't I don't know if you remember this part, but um I had the New York Times with me. And this is back when New York Times Oh my re- gosh, re- yes. And I none of you in the entire cast had seen that full page spread. I remember this moment. And I have it on video. I'm gonna send it to you because I took pic- I took video with my phone and Emily was there and Emilio and the cast and Gloria, and you and Gloria were just freaking out and hugging each other and (laughs) crying. And it was so amazing.
1: Oh my gosh. I remember this moment so perfectly. Wow.
0: But yeah, that was so special. And, and you could, it was palpable. I could feel the bond between you and Gloria that day.
1: Oh yeah. She's, I mean, to this day, like it's, I still sometimes look back and think about the fact that all of that is real. In fact, right back here, those are insoles from sneakers that are signed by the closing cast. Of on your feet um, and Gloria and Emilio. So it's like, yeah, it's very, it's still very surreal to me. And I did it. I was there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you did it girl. And you were there. Uh, and now like, here's a segue. Now you're in Chicago and I you're know. Roxy Hart. It's um, so how does this feel? I mean, I was, um, you know, I went to some of the reopenings last mm-hmm. week on Broadway and it was so magical and being at the Tony Awards and being at the, yeah. um, the CBS show, just that whole idea of coming back after 18 months of the shutdown. How does it feel for you?
1: Um, it's a lot. It's 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 overwhelming in a good way. I feel like, you know, audiences are so hungry, which is just delicious to perform for, but there's definitely an emotional hangover um afterwards and and just the you know, the idea of being six feet apart, the idea of, you know, a year of, of of hammering this concept of social distancing and social distancing and like the difference between then the human connection when you're in a theater and just the, the alchemy in the air um, from this communion with an audience is a lot. Um, so it's been interesting to navigate that. Our, our bodies hold on to that, obviously emotionally um as well but it's it's really kind of thrilling like I think about it sometimes when I'm tired or when I'm on my way to the theater and I'm like how am I about to do four shows four shows in 48 hours um because we have five show weekends um but then I'm like how could I not after being away from it for so long and I wasn't you know if I'm honest I was working in tv during the shutdown so I was not um, affected at the same in the same way that those who had to leave their shows were. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, going back to the fact that I'm an empath, I can understand that and I can feel it in the room. When we got back on that stage, I had never been at the Ambassador Theater. I've never seen Chicago, but the responsibility of reopening Broadway and especially in this iconic role, which has been played by these like mega legends, mm-hmm. um, was or is rather a a challenge, but a responsibility that I welcome because it's something that I personally have never taken it for granted, but like, especially after the shutdown, we cannot take for granted the fact that, that we're allowed to be in those spaces that we're allowed to be telling stories again and sweating and freaking out and getting from physical therapy to acupuncture, to the show, to rehearsal, to press, to whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. like that, that um, the runaround of it all, it is, it is, Olympic performing, Broadway is Olympic performing, but there's definitely a sense of, of gratitude that is undeniable from everybody right now. Um, and so that kind of helps fuel for the next one and the next one and the next one. I stopped drinking coffee after On Your Feet. (laughs) That was a mistake. Um, But I'm heavily considering going back because it's it's an intense lifestyle. But, you know, sometimes you need to be taken away from something in order to appreciate it even more. And for me, it wasn't just the shutdown. It was, I haven't been on a Broadway stage since 2017 when Mm -hmm. On Your Feet closed, Um, and that was, Obviously, completely different because it, I had done it for three years, and it was an original. You know, I was originating the 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 role, and it was an original musical, and all this stuff. But um, never did I imagine having the chance with Broadway reopening to be one of the people at the forefront of that. And I and I I take it really seriously, and I like. I mean, that's history. Like, this has never happened. So it's um it's something very humbling and very like, it it definitely helps me show up and show up and show up.
0: So I want to talk to you a little bit about your Latina side. Sure. Um, uh, and I'm particularly interested in this. I worked at the Broadway League back when we developed Viva Broadway. So it's very mm-hmm. near and dear to my heart, um, even though I'm not a Latina, uh, but I care a lot. And the idea was to bridge this gap between Broadway and the Latinx totally. communities. And um, first thing is, you're going to be doing a performance all in Spanish. Um, well, it's right? not English,
1: should... all in Spanish. Ah, so we, are have, yes, <laughs> we are going to have, yes, we are going to have basically like kind of like bookends of the show in Spanish. Uh, And there was a big conversation that I had with Barry Weisler and who I think it makes, at least for me, it it really shows who they are and how they've been listening in terms of representation on Broadway and whatnot to have this moment and to celebrate like that and to make a specific night, um, I guess geared toward inviting the Latin community or Latin X community or Latin a community or whatever they want you, whatever people want it to be called mm-hmm. um, to the theater, because I didn't personally grow up with access to the theater. Um, I didn't grow up like, Oh, let's just catch a Broadway show and go to New York and whatever. Like that was not the reality. Um, and I know that for some people, it doesn't seem accessible. Um, and yes, tickets to Broadway shows are expensive. And, you know, when, when the priority is putting food on the table and getting to school and whatever, and like the ins and outs of everyday life, you're not like thinking to yourself, let's go spend two and a half hours in a theater watching people play pretend. But there's so much that can be healed and learned and just minds open. And it's culturally so important to have the arts be part of everyday life. Um, So I love the fact that the purpose of Viva Broadway is to like bridge that gap Mm -hmm. and to say to the Latin community that there is a place for you here and that you do belong in this incredibly high-end art form, it really is. I mean, if you think about it, it, it it's the top of like, <laughs> it's the best, it's the best thing, it's the best in the world. Like even the West End, like that is still not Broadway. Um, so it's really important, I think, to make people feel welcome and invited. And for me, ever since I moved to New York, I'm, I'm proud to say that I've been a part of that because any girl or guy or whatever, any any they, them, like anybody could, relate to maybe seeing my trajectory and saying, oh, there is a place for me. And even not as a performer, whether you want to be a stagehand or a producer or a writer, like there is space for theater or for everybody in the theater.
0: So now you're making me think back to the Tonys, which were just a week ago. Mm -hmm. And it's also Hispanic Heritage Month right now. And I'm thinking about Matthew Lopez's speech um, when he won the Tony for The Inheritance. And um, I believe the stats for equity actors, equity members, right now, the only three percent are of Latino, Latinx, Latina, whatever descent. Yeah. And the statistics for writers and other artists are even less than that. Right. So I think you're right. It's so important to see that representation. If it were up to you, how would you help create a more inclusive environment?
1: I think just treating everybody with the same level of dignity. So for example, when I look at press machines, uh, the headline is not, oh, look at this Latin person doing this thing or look at this black person doing this thing or look at this um, queer person doing this thing or this trans person doing this thing. It's look at this great talent doing this great thing. Mm -hmm. The same way that we talk about uh, white people You know what I mean? Like the the headline is not, Oh my God, a woman did something today. No, Mm. this incredible individual achieved whatever it is that they achieved. Um, And that's kind of where I would like to see things go because otherwise if the people in power are still going to always be the people in power, then we will always be the ones just checking off boxes for them. And so I am very interested in normalizing our accomplishments as as just great accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Lynn is not Lynn because he's Puerto Rican. Lynn is Lynn because he's a genius. <laughs> so let's stop calling it what it's not. You know what I mean? And so I think that's where I would like to see the shift and to see the normalization of of ev- everybody's greatness being able to be marketed and pushed in the same way.
0: That's a perfect place to end this podcast. <laughs> that was so inspirational. Oh, so. Great. I'm just gonna say thank you so much for being part of this episode.
1: Thank you, I love this. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Broadway Gives Back Podcast. Broadway Gives Back is part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Special thanks to my producing partner, writer, editor, and friend, Jim Lochner. And thank you to everyone at BPN, including Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, and Kimberly Garris. I'd also like to thank Julian Hills from the Bulldog Agency, and Eric Becker from Broderick Street Music. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also follow Broadway Gives Back on Facebook and Instagram at Broadway Gives Back Podcast and on Twitter at Broadway Gives. To learn more, visit vpnfm slash Broadway Thanks so much.